0: Each and we meet when it is time we keep each other going and we'll show each other signs.
1: Welcome to the songwriters session, singers, stories and songs inviting popular artists into the studio to share some live music and some interesting stories. We started the program with a little bit of a song called We Are Each Other's Angels. We're gonna talk about that as the show goes on. Chuck Brodsky joining me in the studio. I'm so glad to have him here. Uh, He's in the Pacific Northwest uh, doing four or five shows. And I've known Chuck, gosh, for over 30 years. And uh, he he hails out of uh, Asheville, North Carolina at the moment, from Philadelphia originally. And if the name sounds familiar, it may be connected to a lot of baseball songs. He's got, I believe, is it 22, Chuck? 22 in the Hall of Fame, but uh, three new ones. Three new ones. And we're going to hear one of those new ones uh, on, on this edition of the Songwriter Sessions. Uh, tell me about growing up and getting involved in music for the first time. When did you pick up a guitar and when did you write that first song?
2: Well, I didn't pick up a guitar until I was in college. Hmm. I started out playing piano. And, uh, Classical? Well, I suppose I had a few classical lessons, but I had a teacher that let me pick the sheet music I wanted, so I was getting (laughs) popular songs of the day and, you know, Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan and Paul Simon and things, Jackson Brown. But I started lessons at five, age of five. I started sitting at the piano probably when I was three, and there are photos. I have a lot of of old (laughs) photos of me, um, like, sitting there uh, reaching through my crib. To play the piano at 10 months old. So I must have been drawn to it.
1: Musical family, Chuck?
2: Musical aunt, um, that's pretty much it. So she would play. We had a very close family, and uh, when I'd visit my grandparents, and they had a piano at their place, and if my aunt was over there, she'd sit down with me when I was at a very young age and have me on her knee, and she sensed the joy that I was... Mm. getting from music, and really encouraged me. And uh, I started developing my ear at a really young age. I started picking out melodies. I think the little drummer boy was the first thing I ever picked up on my own, and I was three or four years old, so the family realized I might um, benefit from piano lessons, so I took them for a few years. Did did your family encourage you musically? Um, Yeah, they did. Well, in the sense that... When I was that young and playing, uh, I never heard anything but, that's very beautiful, that's really great, Yeah, yeah. nothing uh, to discourage me. You,
1: you said you, went to, you, you picked up the guitar in college. What were you studying in college?
2: Well, the funny thing is the very first day of orientation, when they were welcoming us to university, um, at the same time there were two guys sitting outside on the lawn, and I was by that window. And they had guitars and they were sitting there singing and playing and they just looked like they were having a great time. And I realized immediately, first day of orientation, that what I really wanted to do was play music like these guys, but I didn't play guitar yet and, and I immediately understood I needed to get one and learn how to play it. And we're talking the long-term plan now, maybe the 10-year plan. I'm starting from scratch on a new instrument. I had no illusions that I was going to be ready anytime soon, but... I knew that's what I wanted to do and I knew that I was going to work for it and one day make it happen. And Did those two guys become friends of yours? They did. They were real role models. They, mm. The two of them performed as a duo and uh, one of them was one of the greatest piano players I've ever heard. He could do Billy Joel, Piano mm. Man, like note for note. And So the two of them as a duo were performing on campus and in town there and, and they were real role models for me. But interestingly enough, this past November, I did uh, an annual house concert I do every year in uh, Villanova, Pennsylvania, near my parents, and um, the guitar player came to that show, and it's the first time he's ever heard me. Really? And it meant the world to me. I I knew he was living in in, in the area, and we had mutual friends, and I would say to my mutual friend how I just wish this... Fellow would come one day and hear me, and so he surprised me. He showed up, and it just wow was such a wonderful thing. He was ecstatic hearing me do what I do, and really proud of me. And you know, I I looked up to him. He was the guy that made me want to do this. So nice have him show up. Nice give me a stamp of approval. Was cool. So you learned the guitar. Uh, What about songwriting? Started that in college too. Mm -hmm. But uh, do you remember
1: the first song you wrote?
2: I do. It was a song about a guy who played harmonica, like a street person that played harmonica. But my early songs are, are not anything that I'd want anybody to hear. <laughs> and I, I knew even then that they yeah. weren't good enough and that this was a long growth process. So I wasn't looking to make it back then. I was looking to gain life experiences and become a better songwriter and a better guitar player and singer.
1: What about the first paid gig?
2: That's a good question. I'm not really sure when that would have been, honestly. Probably after I moved out to the West Coast and was living in California.
1: You moved out to the Bay Area? Mm
2: Yeah, and I spent 15 years there and probably the first 10 playing open mics three, four, five times a week, working on my craft. And probably by the end of 10 years, I was starting to do some gigs, little gigs. And for the next five years, that's what I was doing until I decided to try touring and doing it full-time.
1: Chuck Brodsky joining us on the Songwriter Sessions. I knew you've had other jobs per se because you talk about picking uh, fruit in, is it Wenatchee? Yep. How did you get from the Bay Area to Wenatchee and why?
2: Well, I had been in Israel living on a kibbutz communal farm and I was picking citrus fruit there and I did that three different years and the last year I was there. How old were you? First time I was 21, second time I was 23, third time 24. Mm -hmm. I spent three years in Europe, and and I kind of bookended my trip with uh, stays on the kibbutz. So I was picking fruit, and there was an American guy who had been uh, picking apples in Wenatchee through the years, and we were working together picking oranges, and he saw that I really liked that kind of work, as did he and he invited me to come pick apples with him on the same orchard that he worked at. And uh, so I did it. I took the Greyhound out to Wenatchee from Philadelphia, and I picked apples my first year, and I loved it and came out the next year. and uh, Well, that year I bought myself a a 66 Dodge van with my apple money, and that became my home for the next couple of years. That would be
1: apples on the tree as opposed to apple money today
2: <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> different, different kind of apple money yeah i, yeah. I guess we need to clarify yeah. that yeah so the money i made from picking i bought i bought my first vehicle and i lived in it for a couple of years in san francisco and uh went back up there the next year my buddy who had introduced me to the washington orchards wasn't picking anymore so i just went back up there mm. and brought a friend with me and uh so I love that work. I, I probably picked five different years' worth of uh, fruit between the apples and the citrus.
1: And you did some writing during that time as well.
2: Oh, yeah. By now uh, by now I was uh, well into right. writing songs. In fact,
1: you, you did one song. Was it called La Migra? Yep. Uh, up, about the immigration folks coming in and chasing away the pickers.
2: Yeah, well, they tried to catch them. They weren't yeah. trying to chase them away. They were trying to catch them, but they all ran. We had a signal amongst ourselves if anybody saw them coming up the driveway of the orchard. Somebody would whistle, and everybody would ditch their fruit sacks and jump off their ladders and run into the trees and disappear, and uh, immigration police, La Migra, would never find them. And I would keep on picking, and they'd sometimes come over to me and ask me, where did everybody go? And I'd say, well, how should I know? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just doing my job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're writing, and are you singing at
1: that point, too? Are you doing yep. any gigs in, in the area, in Washington?
2: Not in Washington. I mm. just was up for uh, just the apple season and a bit of pears. Yeah. Then I uh, went back to the Bay Area, and I was playing open mics. And I, I still think this may have predated any paid gigs I was doing. I still was in my young 20s and young mid-20s and playing open mics.
1: What kept you going? Um, Just I wanted to do this.
2: I, mm. I knew I wanted to do mm. this. I, I This was... This was the thing I loved most: making music, um, writing songs. I loved the the thought of eventually becoming a performer, traveling around troubadour style. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's it was just you know that long range vision, but something that I I knew I needed to work every day towards. And I just I saw the progress I had been making, and so I just said to myself, if I keep working this hard, you know, blah blah blah, in X number of years I might be ready. And it was always that long range, you know, maybe it was five marathon, years. the marathon, not the sprint. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it, and it was always some date years ahead, giving myself, like, that cushion. But then one day I had a motorcycle accident, a pretty bad motorcycle accident that um, I had a couple surgeries, made it so that I wasn't able to work, and they had to fill my position. So... I, after a year of disability, I qualified for unemployment for a year, and it, and I was still healing and doing physical therapy and It was stuff. just in the and, Bay Area? Yep. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the two years, I decided to give it a shot, and I haven't turned back since. It's been 28 years.
1: Did you write a lot of songs in, uh, while you were rehabbing?
2: I think I did. The first three months, I was on painkillers that clouded me, and mm-hmm. I, I didn't think I did any writing then, but once... Once I didn't need the painkillers anymore mm-hmm. and could be more or less my normal self, I had a year and three quarters of uh, basically paid time to heal. Wow. So I used that to just practice and write and learn a little bit about how to go about booking yourself and doing what you need to do. And at the end of that, since the unemployment was running out, I just thought, okay, I'm going get, get to book to 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 some gigs.
1: yeah. <laughs> And what was that experience like being a one-person operation? You do the booking. You do the travel arrangements. uh, um, You find the place to stay. You have have to do it all. You don't have a manager. You don't have an agent.
2: No, it's all me. It's all me. It's just time-consuming. It's very time-consuming. A lot of details, too. More details than you can imagine because it's not just the trying to fill your calendar booking gigs, but you also have to maintain a presence on all the various social media platforms and there are all these different music sites you need to upload your music to and you need to upload your albums and I've got 12 albums now so to enter all this data, song titles and where they were recorded and what year the albums came out and who's on the albums and to, to upload all this data to various sites is just, you know, it can take three days yeah. just to do one site, three complete days of doing nothing but entering all this stuff. And there's that, there's booking flights or hotels or whatever I might need to do for travel purposes. And not to mention songwriting and practicing and a lot of different things.
1: What's What's the songwriting process like for Chuck Brodsky?
2: It's never the same. Mm. It's always, it's always a fresh bag. And it starts with an undeniable idea that is just too strong, too cool to ignore. Because I want to ignore it, you know? It's a it's it's an intense process. At least when I do it, I I don't know, I can't speak for anybody else, but this is my craft and this is what I am dedicated to. So I won't call a song finished until I feel like every word is just right, and that can take 50 drafts. That could take 100 drafts. I don't know. It's, it's just when I read through it and I see that there's nothing else I can fix, and I'm happy with everything, every single word, then the song's done. And that could happen in one day, and that, can hap- that could take a year. And you just never know. Yeah. But the process starts with that. Uh, do you write in longhand? Do you write on your phone, uh, a computer, tablet? I start with longhand until I'm convinced that I'm onto something mm. and maybe have a verse or two mm-hmm. and then I'll type it into the word processor on my laptop, and then I can move things around and then I can add to it. Then I can try uh you know new ideas for verses and the great thing about a word processor is that you can move things out of your way so you don't have a lot of clutter, you don't have right. things crossed out and arrows pointing to. <laughs> The new line all yeah, the way, yeah. you know, on the other side of the page. It's a lot cleaner, but I won't go there to the word processor to start. I, I want to make sure that I'm on to something mm. and this is going somewhere. And then once I have that feeling, um, I'll go over to the computer. Chuck Brodsky is joining us
1: on the Songwriter Sessions. Chuck, in your show today, you mentioned that there was one song that you wrote in an hour that just came right through mm. you. Uh, and others, again, as you say, take weeks, months, and you said several songs took decades.
2: Well, two have taken decades, and Wh- which two? Honestly, I I don't remember. I would have to really think about it. But on short, you know, just yeah, yeah. spare the moment, I can't really um, re- but, but remember.
1: But you go you go back to the song if it's not finished.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll walk away from from songs mm. routinely. I'll uh, when I feel like I'm just tapped out. I'm not. Uh, my mind's not working clearly or maybe I've hit a dead end and I just can't see where to take this, I'll leave it alone for a while, walk away from it. Even even something that is finished that I re- think is really good, I'll still, uh, I like to walk away from it. I like to lay it down for three, four, five days, not look at it at all, not think about it, come back to it with fresh eyes, and then if everything still seems really strong, then okay, then my song might be done and I'll try to put some music to it. But otherwise, uh, you know, I might see some things that need to be tinkered with, and I've got a a fresh mind for it.
1: Words first or melody?
2: Almost always words first. Once in a blue moon, the music comes first. But what happens when when the music comes first is that I often get lost in the music. Uh, If I have an instrument in my hands and I start playing the chord sequence and... Playing around with a melody. Next thing I know, an hour's passed, and I've been noodling on the guitar, and I haven't been working on the song itself. And so I like to I like to just keep the music part of it until I know I've got my lyrics. I'm I'm still writing to like a rhythmic cadence, which makes putting a melody a lot easier to it. You know, like bump, 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 bum, bu-bum, bu-bum, mm-hmm. bu-bum, 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 bu-bum. Mm-hmm. So and all the lyrics have to fit into that kind of a pattern. And without that structure, then it'd probably be a lot harder to find music. But because I already have the essence of the beat and the, and the cadence, the music for me is, well, to, to quote Carolyn from uh, Reed Jameson, you know, it's like I can almost poop out a, a melody every day <laughs> or several <laughs> of them. You know, it's, that's, not the, that's not what takes work. What yeah. takes work for me is, is uh, the lyrics. Yeah.
1: You also can write on demand. You have been to some songwriting retreats Mm -hmm. where they basically give you a a week. Not even. Less than a week. 48 hours. 48 hours. And they give you a topic, kind of a framework of a song, and you've got to come up with something. Do you go to those often, and how does that affect your creative process?
2: Mm. I go once a year to uh, a songwriting retreat in Michigan where um, I have taught many times, but... It just happens to take place around the same time that I'm in Michigan anyway every year, and I'll often just go as an attendee. It's very different from what I ordinarily would yeah. do. And I'm, I'm being given a subject that I might not, on my own, think about to, to make a song from. So I like that. You know, you can get stuck. Mm. You can often get stuck in... in kind of doing the same style of song that that becomes your your thing and there's something to be said for having a thing having a sound having an approach a type of song that you you know characteristically is what you do but it's also pretty cool to be in a situation where somebody's forcing you outside of your comfort zone every year you know I have to have to write at least one song sometimes I stay for two of the retreats they're back-to-back weekends and um, then I get two different song assignments and Hopefully at least one of them will be one that really resonates with me. And they don't always. Some years, you know, the best I can do is deliver a good song assignment, you know, fulfillment of the song assignment. But other years I get a real keeper that fits into my shows that will be a song I record. Maybe half the time it's turned out that way. And the other years, well, you know, okay, I I fulfilled the assignment. I did a pretty good job with that. But it's not really a song that I see taken out into the world. Yeah. It's not among my best 30 or 50 songs, so there's no real reason to play it. You know,
1: they say write what you know. I, I write a lot of poetry, and I do it from feelings and things that are happening at the moment. And your songs, you write what you know, and you draw pictures with music and lyrics. You're a great storyteller. If something happens to you, you can take that and turn it into not just a song but a great song. The one that comes to mind uh, is, is Bill and Annie. That happened as a result of you being at the Kerrville Folk Festival and just going into town to pick up some groceries. Tell the story.
2: I had a girlfriend named Annie at the time. This was about 25 years ago. And the Kerrville Folk Festival is an 18-day long festival, and we were staying all 18 days. So that's why we had to replenish supplies in town. And on the way in, there was a guy selling peaches. The local peaches down in, uh, they come from Fredericksburg, Texas. They're really special. And so we had a hankering for them and we pulled over and the guy was a real talker. And uh, maybe we were the only people that had stopped for a while, but he had us. But it was great. You know, he was, it was just a very, very, very hot day, like 100 degrees. So our patience was a little thin. And <laughs> anyway, at, at some point, The man realized he hadn't introduced himself and felt terrible for that. That's a very southern thing. So he told us his name was Bill, and I told him I'm Chuck, and this was Annie. And when I told him Annie's name, he said, you know, I had a woman once in my life named Annie. And he started this whole new story about his Annie. I'd say at the time he was probably mid-50s, and I was probably mid-30s. okay. So that's that's what I wrote about, the, the story that he told me about his Annie. And that's, you know, that's kind of what I like to do, take real situations or re- stories about real people and, and turn them into songs.
1: How long did it take that one to come to fruition?
2: A couple or a few days.
1: Mm, that that quick?
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd say the majority of my songs get written over two or three days. Mm-hmm. Sometimes one whole day. But, it, but that idea of a song coming through me in an hour start to finish is just very, very, very unusual.
1: And Bill heard that song.
2: Yeah, he did. A year later, he was not out on the side of the road like I was hoping he would be because there was a drought in Texas and mm. no peach crop. But I found somebody who was able to track him down and get me his phone number, and I phoned him from North Carolina and he remembered meeting wow. Annie and me, and I told him I'd written this song, and I sent it to him. Back then, it was on a cassette, uh, I, you know, home-recorded cassette. Yeah, yeah. Then the, the following year, two years after the original meeting with him, he was out there again, and I pulled over by the side of the road with a guitar and sang it for him in person. And Oh, man. Yeah, we stayed friends for a couple of years, but he moved on. I don't know what he's doing now. Mm. the uh, the cops wouldn't let him sell on the side mm. of the road after a couple of years or a few years, so that was the end of seeing him. What
1: about Annie? Well,
2: the Annie that was with me yeah hmm well she's uh her name is Annie Gallup and she is one of the finest and most original songwriters I have ever heard in my mm. life. She lived in the Seattle area for a long time. When I met her, she was living on Bainbridge Island, and ended up moving to North Carolina to be with me. But she's still out there somewhere. Um, I, you know, we're not in touch or lost touch, but she's truly remarkable—a one-of-a-kind songwriter, Annie Gallup. What did
1: she think of Bill and Annie? Oh, she thought it was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's listen to uh, Chuck Brotsky and Bill and Annie.
0: Stop for peaches, little roadside stand. Man said his name was Bill. Said, I'm Chuck and this is Annie. He said Annie was the one and only true love of his life. They met at his wedding, but by then he had a wife. And it was during the reception. In the spring of 64, and she, his newlywed's best friend, followed him out the ballroom door. Maybe his ring got smaller, maybe his finger swelled, maybe he made a big mistake,
2: maybe time would tell.
0: do you feel what I feel? Nanny said, I do. And Bill was at a loss, wondering now, what should he do? He did what he had to. He'd just taken a wife. She would take good care of him for the rest of her life. nanny fought the urge they saw each other often she was there in black the day bill's wife lay in her coffin by then she'd gotten married by then she'd moved away she'd spill bill for his blessings he said i was okay Bill said, taste the peaches, and he cut us each a slice. They were a little on the small side, but they sure tasted nice. Do you think I did the right thing? Bill asked, though I knew he knew. So I answered with a question, asked him, Bill, do you? Well, he said, Annie. Pleased to meet you. Nice to meet you, Chuck. Nanny and I, we drove away in Annie's pickup truck with a box of 20 peaches, a homegrown tomato too, and a couple of things to think about. And every now and then, I do, I do.
1: great Chuck Brodsky on uh, songwriter sessions, singer stories and songs, the story of Bill and Annie. The other songs that you're well known for are baseball songs. You're obviously a, a big sports fan. You, you grew up in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you have to be a sports <laughs> fan, don't you?
2: Well, I don't uh, know if you have to be, but I sure am. Uh, my, yeah. dad, uh, my dad was and, and I am. Uh,
1: Your love of baseball. Hmm. How did you get into the history? and, and st- I mean, you took deep dives into baseball. Why? How? What What brought that about?
2: Well, it, it was never anything I planned on doing. I wrote my first baseball song, Lefty, when I was in my young 20s, but I never played it for anybody for six, seven, eight years even. Because Why? Because I just assumed, wrongly, that people would find a song about sports to be trite. But I had no idea that there already were baseball songs that had been written, that people loved. There was a whole bunch of people out there who really liked this kind of thing, and this was just the furthest thing from my mind. I didn't think that would be possible. So I didn't play the song for years, and I think I slipped it into a little song circle around a campfire late at night once, and my friends really reacted to it and told me I need to be playing that song publicly. So I started to play it publicly, and at shows and the same thing was happening people were reacting love your baseball song love your baseball song so that was a revelation but i still wasn't thinking in terms of writing more then one day i wanted to tell jackie robinson's story and write a song about that and i went to a local bookstore and found a book about jackie robinson and started to thumb through it and i landed on a page where i saw one paragraph it mentioned a, a white guy by the name of Eddie Klepp oh, yeah. who had played in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, And immediately I realized that's my story. That's what I need to tell. I mean, Jackie Robinson's story is a great story, but it's common knowledge. And here was a story that nobody would know. And so I thought, okay, that's what, that's what I want to write about, but where in the world am I going to find out more about Eddie Klepp? This was pre-internet certainly mm-hmm. pre-Google anyway. So my dad suggested that I call the Baseball Hall of Fame and see if anybody there would know. Well, I had no idea the hall had a research department. I had no idea that there were serious baseball scholars out there and authors and all that stuff. So I, I phoned the hall, I got the main switchboard, and I asked uh, if anybody there might be knowledgeable about um old-time baseball, I told the woman, you know, just all I knew, this white guy that played in the Negro League, and she said, well, let me put you through to the research department. Oh. Oh, wow, research, okay. So the head of the research department happened to answer my call, and I asked him if he had ever heard of a guy named Eddie Klepp, and his answer was, no, who was he? (laughs) So I thought I was sunk, but I told him all I knew white man played in the negro leagues the same year Jackie Robinson He must have been intrigued. The color well, what he what he said to that was, "Wow, that sounds like it would make a really cool song or poem." <laughs> As and a then I said, fact, "Funny you should yeah, say yeah. that." So I told him how I'm a songwriter. Turns out his favorite songwriter was my favorite songwriter at the time and we had all this in common. Who is that? A guy named Greg Brown. Oh my god. At that at yeah, that stage, yeah, you know, yeah, I was really Really into Greg Brown, and so it was this guy. So we had that in common, and he took a shine to me. And he said, "Well, you know what? Why don't you leave me your phone number, and I'll have a look through our files here. And if I find anything, I'll call you." And he phoned me back later that day and said, "Wow, you're in luck! I found two articles about Eddie Clapp from the '40s, and I'm xeroxing them to you for you, and I'll, I'll mail them." So he did that, and then and then this fella became my resource. Anytime I had a an idea for a song and needed background information, I'd phone him up, and he would go looking through the files, and he would sometimes Xerox me, you know, an inch thick full of, full of pages and, and send it my way. I'd say probably the first nine or ten baseball songs, that was how I was able to get research information. And then the Internet yeah, was yeah. established in Google, and so I don't need that kind of help anymore.
1: What but was his name, Tim? Tim Wiles. Yeah, Tim, yeah. You were the one who turned me on to Tim, Mm. and all my baseball interviews that I have done about addiction are now, along with your songs, in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Oh, that's great. You've got, what, 22 songs in the hall? Yep. And you're still writing them. In fact, you have a new song that you've not yet recorded. Right. Give the backstory of of what you're going to be singing because it's powerful.
2: There was a pitcher by the name of Brian Mazone, he was a minor league, career minor league pitcher. Uh, I, I want to say he pitched about 12 years in the minors, and ultimately he ended up in the Phillies organization, and one of their major league pitchers had a sore arm and had to miss a start, so they called this guy up from AAA for a spot start, and his parents flew in, his <sighs> wife flew in the day before. The dream about to come true. Yeah, and then he woke up in the morning in the you know nice hotel room that the major league team put him up in, and it was pouring rain and the rain never stopped and he went to the ballpark and he got dressed but they ultimately called the game and the man never got another chance he never got called up to the majors again and this was after pitching for so many different teams including uh, a couple of teams in mexico team in venezuela he pitched in korea he pitched in canada all over the u.s 20 different teams. And that was his one and only call-up. Rained out. Yeah. Oh. Terrible. Yeah. Called a cup of coffee.
0: There was orange on the radar. In some places it was red. saw it on the TV. still in bed room service brought him breakfast some good coffee as well he could get used to staying at a major league hotel it was raining hard that morning All day it would pour and he would just stare out the window from the twenty-seventh floor the night before at supper, some joint in Buffalo the skipper called to tell him. going to the show text messages and emails were lighting up his phone from all his friends and family from everyone he'd ever known his folks flew in from Boston wife just made her flight They all got there the next day To see him pitch that night And so he put his big leg pants on And he tied his big leg shoes While a couple of big leggers Giving interviews. His name was in the lineup. He was mentioned on the news. He'd knocked around a dozen years for this. He'd even pitched in Veracruz. And so he walked out through that tunnel. Stand on a big league mound. His tears mixed with the raindrops, and he felt like he might drown. He squeezed the big league baseball, ran his fingers along the seams. The rain was cruel and stung him as it washed away his dreams and it was flooded in the dugout it was a lonely place to sit He thought of going to korea or maybe it was time to quit and how next time they need a pitcher they'll probably call up some kid. And every time thereafter, well, that's exactly what they did. That tarp was never lifted, and that storm never let up. It's like he got his cup of coffee Coffee cup. And they let him keep his jersey. And the box that's soaking wet. That was as close to the majors as he would ever get. Well, now you can't say that's baseball. Especially if you never played But for the guy who works his ass off and whose dues are overpaid This was all he'd ever wanted ever since the seventh grade Congratulations were in order were paid Well oh, that tarp was never lifted And that storm never let up It's like he got his cup of coffee Without the coffee cup What happened to him? Do you
2: know? He's out of baseball now hmm I don't know what he's doing. I believe he lives in Southern California.
1: Did you ever try to make contact with him?
2: Well, um, I learned about the story from a Washington Post article that my dad read and clipped out and mailed to me. And just about two months ago, maybe three months ago, Mm -hmm. it occurred to me that I ought to send that song to the the guy who wrote that article. So I found his email address at the Washington Post website, and I, I sent him the the song is an mp3 and I sent him the lyrics and he was just thrilled I mean I was so happy to to get his response he just said man you nailed it you 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 told in four and a half minutes what took me four pages to to tell and he offered to send it to Brian Mazone. and I wrote him back and I said use your best judgment if you, since you know him from talking yeah, to him, if yeah. you feel like this song would just make him miserable to hear it and remind him, then maybe it's not a good idea. If you think he can handle it, then I'd I'd love for him to yeah, have it. Yeah. I don't know what he did. I haven't heard back since.
1: Well, you may. you may, Yeah. You may. You had an experience with Richie Allen where you had written the song um, Letters in the Dirt. Letters in the Dirt. And you ran into him mm. in Cooperstown. Mm-hmm. Quickly tell that story. We don't have time to play that song, but tell the story and then people can find the song online.
2: Well, i had been invited to do a concert at the Baseball Hall of Fame of some of my baseball songs years ago. I've done three concerts there, but this was the Mm. first time, and I was told Dick Allen happened to be in Cooperstown, too. He now works for the Phillies, and there was some kind of a baseball event going on, so he was staying at the big hotel, the Otisaga Hotel there, and... Richie Allen, or Dick Allen as he's known today, but I, we'll call him Richie because the, the song is set in the mid-'60s when he was mm-hmm. known as Richie Allen. And he was booed by the Philadelphia fans. He was African-American, and he was the first African-American of any kind of star caliber, appearing on this team at a very racially yeah. disturbing time. At that time, African-American ballplayers were expected to just keep their mouths shut and their heads down and you know, be seen, not heard, play ball, but... shut up and that's not who this guy was or is he's a human being and and you know this unfortunately was in a time when a guy like him just couldn't really be free to be himself and he was much maligned by the press and the fans turned against him and they used to boo him so his response was to wait until the Phillies were in the field on defense, and after a season or two, he settled in as uh, a first baseman after playing third and left field. So he'd stand there between pitches and write words in the dirt with his shoes, and he'd write boo back at the fans and other things as well, and that stayed with me for years and years and years. And that song became the title cut for your CD. For my second yes, CD. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So you ran into him.
2: So I ran into him. Um, the whole idea was to drive over to this hotel, the Otisaga Hotel, hoping that maybe I could leave a copy of the CD at the front desk, and they'd be nice enough to pass it on to him with the song on it. But when I walked in the lobby of the hotel, he was in the lobby, right before my eyes, Whoa. having a conversation with somebody. So I just waited till he was free and walked over to him and told him I'd... Grown up watching him play and always loved him and wrote this song about him and handed him the CD. And then uh, while he was just kind of stunned and, and sizing me up and looking at the CD and trying to make sense of this whole thing, stranger coming up out of the blue and saying, I wrote a song about you, here's a CD with it. I remembered a photo in the back of the booklet of the word boo in the dirt that we had composed. And I thought it'd be fun to show it in person. So I had him hand me the CD back, and I took the shrink wrap off, pulled the booklet out, and showed him this. And next thing I know, a tear's running down his cheek. Wow. Yeah, it was awesome. Wow. Chuck Brodsky is joining us on
1: the Songwriter Session Singers, Stories, and Songs, talking about uh, the songwriting process, some of the songs that he's written. You tour extensively. How many dates do you do a
2: year? Well, it varies. Um, I'd say anywhere from... 80 to 120. It just really depends on the year. And sometimes things come my way. Other times I have to knock on doors, and it's always a combination of both. But years where more things come my way, yeah. I have more dates.
1: What do you like best about touring? What do you like
2: least? Best? Getting home at the end of, of a tour. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not true. But you just happen to catch me yeah, on the yeah. day before I'm flying home right, when there's right. very much on my mind. I love doing shows. I love being in front of an audience and interacting telling the stories and singing the songs. Um, I love getting off of interstates Mm. and busy roads and taking back roads where I might be the only car on them. Mm. I do that as much as I can when I'm in parts of the country that allow for that. Um, I love meeting people. I love when people come to me with a story. It might be their personal story. It might be a story that they think I, uh, I would appreciate about somebody else, but you know it's stimulating i i live in a mountain in the woods yeah and sure i don't do. go out a lot when i'm yeah. home off <laughs> yeah. the road so you know the stimulation's good for me the social interaction being out among people out on the road being in cities here and there and seeing the world
1: it's, it's... talk about the music industry today from the standpoint of a singer-songwriter who travels and everything seems to be changing
2: yeah i i actually th- Feel like I'm completely outside of the music industry. Mm. I don't feel like that's something I participate in. I have tried to carve a little niche for myself, make my own life, you know, a circuit for myself yeah. and contacts. But I just think the music business, music industry, is to call it corrupt would be the wrong word. But it's it's a case where, you know, the corporate entities hold all the cards and make all the money. And so I don't want to participate that way. I would rather participate in a, do a more underground thing, where it's uh, volunteer-run venues, or house, house concerts. concerts as well. But the, you know, there are a lot of nonprofit folk music series that go on. They might happen in libraries. They might use church facilities, what have you, and they do one show a month or two shows a month. But they're not taking a cut. They're not. They're not looking to live off of this. Right. And commercial venues, every artist will tell you it's the same deal. You know, it's it's awful because they want to take the first couple hundred or 250 bucks or 300 bucks off the top for their production costs. The sound man, the doorman, any advertising they did. Okay. But I have a flight. I have a car rental. I have a hotel. You've got, got night. expenses. Yeah. What about my expenses? And this is what every artist has to deal with yeah. when they play... All the name clubs and the and the um, the commercial venues, they skim that off the top and then they give you you know your percentage of what's left. Whereas you play the nonprofit series where people are putting the mu- putting the concert on for the love of yeah, the music or absolutely. the sake of community, they give you the whole door and that's enough to make a living. But the, you know, this is folk music. I'm not playing in front of. 10,000 people a night. I'm playing in front of 50 to 100 every night, maybe a couple hundred sometimes. It makes a huge difference when I'm not getting the smallest piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other side of the music business, the, the trying to sell our music on CDs, which is a losing, a losing battle the, there's now.
1: A, there's an assumption among a lot of people that artists today make a lot of money with streaming, with Pandora and Spotify. Oh Not God. true.
2: Oh, that couldn't be any further from the truth. For example, I got a statement, an accounting statement mm. from the organization that collects my royalties from all of the streaming platforms like Pandora and Spotify and mm-hmm. Apple Music, and they do it quarterly. So last year, for one of the quarters, I had 77,000 streams of my songs. And that translated to $14 in royalties, not even the price of one single CD. But that has replaced people buying CDs. Mm -hmm. Everybody's streaming music. And so the payout per stream is something like, I don't know, one hundredth or two hundredths or three hundredths of a penny. And I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. This is not an exaggeration. This is literally what artists are getting paid every time somebody streams our songs. And cars... No longer come with CD players, and seems like fewer and fewer people have anything to play CDs with. So where once CD sales were fifty percent of my income and fifty percent of all my peers' income, Mm -hmm. it's probably closer to ten percent. I lost forty. I lost forty percent of my income since two thousand eight because CD sales don't Mm. exist. You know, at live shows, I'll sell a few, but nothing like the pre-2008. Are,
1: are you suggesting
2: that people should not stream on, on the services? No, I'm not suggesting that. I don't know what the answer is. I understand the convenience of having a subscription mm. and being able to listen to anything you want yeah. at any time. I, yeah, I, I can't put that down. And I just have to hope that with all those streams, it's winning me new followers mm. who might want to come hear me play live. Mm. But that, that's the only way I can look at it anymore because I can't fight the system. There's nothing I can do really to change that system. I, I can, we can talk about stuff like this on the air and hope that leads to a few more people deciding, well, I'd rather buy the CD because I'd like to support this artist and I know he's not going to make anything if I stream his music. And that does happen. Uh, there, are, there are certainly uh, more and more people out there realizing how hard it has become for independent artists to make a living. And so the people that can afford to do the little extra steps here and there, they might buy a CD that costs fifteen dollars and hand you twenty and say, "Keep the, the difference." Yeah. And all these little gestures add up, and they make a difference. And if it wasn't for the generous ones out there, you know, we re- most of us probably couldn't keep doing this. And I'm one of the lucky ones who has forged a path for myself. And you know, I, I've known a lot of people who had to give up touring and, and, and get a, a, a day job. They made it work for a few years, but, uh, you know, this is 28 years for me doing only music. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's a—I feel really blessed and, and, and incredibly fortunate that it's worked out for me. But that's my reality. Um, we don't make a lot of money, yeah. especially if it's folk music. You'd be shocked.
1: Let's go back to the music. You've got a, a, a wide catalog of songs, and one that you did that was <laughs> very catchy uh, at, at the House Concert. Was about a a dance that you went to. You were very young. You were in elementary
2: school? Yeah, we had dance lessons we had to come back to school for on Friday nights. And sixth grade. You were traumatized. (laughs) Yes. Severely traumatized.
1: And from that came a song. Story first.
2: Well, this is another one of those song assignments from the retreat that I teach at. Premise of this was that I was tapped on the shoulder. By a woman while at a, some kind of a formal dinner ball and she asked me if I want to dance. So I don't dance and the reason for that is these dance lessons and the fact that the way they would pair us up because in sixth grade you know boys and girls weren't even talking to each other so it wasn't <laughs> like you know we were, we were very willing to ask a young lady to be our dance partner. They had all the girls take their left shoe off and put it in the center of the gym and big pile of them formed and then all the boys would go pick one shoe and the owner of that shoe would be your partner for the whole night so if you got yeah, you, know, <laughs> you gotta get the right shoe if you got the wrong shoe yeah. you could be traumatized yes, like yeah. I was <laughs>
1: uh, the song is called Two Left Feet Chuck Brodsky <laughs>
0: Was one certain girl i was hoping to meet what i've asked her to dance but for my two left feet she wasn't sitting with anyone else i was just sitting there all by myself i said i didn't dance i have two left feet to this other girl standing over me in my seat besides really wasn't my kind of beat this wasn't the girl i was hoping to meet I wasn't attracted, not on first glance, she wouldn't go away, and I didn't want to dance. She lifted me up to my two left feet, my eyes went for the girl I was hoping to meet. Well, I was thinking I should make a break for the door, she pulled me out there onto the dance floor band started in on an old-fashioned waltz she didn't lead and so i did by default and it was awkward enough those very first steps i stepped on her right toes and then on her left evading her eyes i tried to be discreet keeping tabs on the girl i was hoping to meet waist made me relax she moved it up to the small of my back touching the nerve I shot her a glance she said I thought you told me that you couldn't dance she pointed down at my right foot on all the right places wherever I'd put it she followed me when I spun her around when I dipped her all the way down way her hair fell back and hung to the floor The way we locked eyes then and forevermore The thing about beauty, and I don't know why But sometimes you don't see it till it pokes you in the eye the One song ended and another began And we exchanged names and applauded the band I guess I never did let go of her hand For the next couple hours Dance, then we danced and now we go out dancing every Saturday night. She dresses up, and she's quite a sight. This was a girl I didn't want to meet, but that was a guy with the two left feet.
1: Chuck Brodsky and Two Left Feet. Uh, I'm Neil Scott. The program is songwriter sessions, singers, stories, and songs. We've been visiting with Chuck, uh, talking about uh, uh, the music that he writes, the music that he records, the music that he carries with him all over the country. And if he happens to come to your part of the country, please find out where he's playing and definitely go and see him because that's how artists now make money. What do you see over the next five years for you? I know you told me that you were thinking of doing a couple of books.
2: Yeah, I've started writing a uh, book of stories. It wasn't really my idea, but some friends have been leaning on me because uh, I have had an incredible life. There's no two. Yeah. There's no question about it. I have met amazing people and seen all sorts of things and traveled all over. I'm writing up those stories bit by bit, and I, I also lead tours, lead Uh, tours of my fans to Ireland and to Scotland.
1: You've been doing that a long time.
2: Yeah, I'm just starting to do Scotland, though. Ireland I have been doing for 11, 12 years. That's a wonderful thing, and I'm looking to expand that a little bit. I don't know. Mm. I've been working on my piano playing, and intend in the next year or so to start integrating that more into my live show.
1: You can find all of Chuck's material, uh, his, his lyrics, his music. You can buy his music. Did I say that? Buy his music, purchase the CDs, and help out an artist. ChuckBroski.com is the website, uh, and you can find about where Chuck is going to be, his tour schedule. And if you want to go with Chuck uh, on a a very interesting uh, trip to to Ireland, it's not just you singing on this trip. You go into, you take a deep dive into the uh, places that you visit, right?
2: Yeah, we do. I do one private concert Mm -hmm. for each tour group but it's not about me, it's not about my music, it's about the music of Ireland and the music of Scotland, and we have three private concerts on each tour with real major leaguers. People know bands such as Danu and Dervish mm. and Lunasa, the real heavyweights. Some of their members will play privately for our groups, and the rest of the nights we go out into pubs and hear great <laughs> traditional music, and nice. we, we have a blast. And nice. we see the sights by day on, on the tour bus. and we have And, our own and you sell these things out every time. I announced two Scotland tours maybe three or four months ago for 2021. The first one sold out in 24 hours. Second one sold out in three days. We added Mm. a third. And all that information can be found on on my website, com. And I also want to point out to people that they can stream full-length versions of all my songs on my website as well. They don't have to buy. They can listen to every song. They can look at all the lyrics if they want. I have photo galleries and videos and there's a whole baseball, there's a really cool baseball section on the, uh, on the website.
1: I want to close this out with an, another piece, uh, your first CD, and it's what we started the show with. And I would ask you to play it live, but I would get too emotional because every time you do, uh, it certainly brings me to tears. And we're going to close out the songwriter sessions with Chuck Brodsky with another little bit of We Are Each Other's Angels. We meet when it is time. We keep each other going and we show each other signs. Thanks, Chuck, for coming in.
2: It's great to see you, Neil. Great to be with you.
1: I'm Neil Scott. The program is the Songwriter Sessions, Singers, Stories, and Songs.
0: Sometimes you'll stumble Sometimes you'll just lie down Sometimes you will get lonely With all these people around You might shiver when the wind blows, and you might get blown away. You might lose a little color, you might lose a little fear but we are each other's angel. And we meet when it is time And we keep each other going And show each other signs